This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. We are here today with Assistant Professor in the Department of Military History, Dr. Bill Nance. Welcome, Bill. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about a part of a a very um, famous and and relatively well-known conflict that is not all that well-known, for reasons we'll get into. Um, And we're going to talk about one of the commanders in the Western Theater of Europe during World War II, General William Simpson commander of 9th Army for most of World War II, on whom Dr. Nance is an expert, among other things. So if you will, Dr. Nance, start us off with kind of the big picture. Um, We're going to be focusing on later in the war, 1944-1945, but kind of give us a very brief overview of of where we are by mid to late 1944 and how we got there. Okay, so the story of the 9th Army is kind of an interesting one, and uh, there are the third U.S. field army, fourth U.S. field army, depending on how you uh, split the difference between them and the seventh army, to be committed into northwest Europe. The first army, of course, is the first army to be committed. They're the guys that come ashore on D-Day. Uh, they, uh, they fight actually underneath the 21st Army Group with Montgomery, and this is all through the summer of 1944. And this is Montgomery, the British commander, correct? Correct. Uh, Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery, uh, the Viscount Alamein, uh, he has many names. St. Uh, Montgomery to some. Yes. And uh, so that's the 21st Army Group uh, commands the fighting in Normandy. And that's the 2nd British Army and the U.S. 1st Army. Now, that eventually grows to include the uh, 1st Canadian Army as well. And then as the breakout occurs, the Patton's Army, the 3rd U.S. Army, is activated and takes charge of the assault out of the uh, Normandy perimeter. And the 1st Army kind of grabs the Germans by the nose and kind of holds that interior part of the breakout. And 3rd Army splits off into Brittany and then heads out east towards Paris, Moselle and points east. If so, you ask Patton, Berlin. So basically, we've landed at Normandy, we've established the beachhead, now you're walking us through the breakout where you have a fixing force and then the moving force down south. Right, and at this point, uh, you have a split in the command structure. Uh, as, as I said before, they start off with the 21st Army Group under uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, British commander, and once... The Third Army activated. That actually caused the uh, the American Twelfth Army group to stand up. So now you have two army groups: one American, the Twelfth, and one British, the Twenty-First. And they both report up to the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force Eisenhower. And so Bradley, who had been as the First Army commander, stepped up to be the Twelfth Army group commander. His deputy, General Hodges, stepped up to become the first Army commander. Okay, so we're talking General Omar Bradley? Correct. And? Uh, General Courtney Hodges. Okay. Uh, and these guys, and then, the, so the first Army's got the fixing force, third Army's doing the exploitation. And at that point, the Germans, they do the operation, uh, forgive my pronunciation, Lutik, uh, which they uh, try and fight in Mortain. They try and cut Patton's third army off. They fail. You have the fillet pocket where the tw- where you have two army groups that can't quite coordinate because things are so new. And the fillet pocket doesn't quite close when they want it to, although it eventually does close. And you have two armies, American armies, advancing rapidly eastward across France. And then you've got a Canadian and British army advancing northeast uh, up along the uh, North uh, the North Sea coast and the Channel Coast. So if you're following on a map of France, basically where we are is we've landed in Normandy, the breakout has pushed south, Patton's third army, which is the exploitation, has moved along the Loire River Valley to the east, and now we're racing across, including liberating Paris. Right. And uh, kind of from north to south, you've got kind of the first Canadian army who's been tasked to take care of all the ports, so they kind of get left behind. you got 2nd British Army, 
First American Army and then Third American Army. Okay. Also during the summer, you have the uh, Operation Dragoon, where you have the U.S. Seventh Army and the French First Army land around Marseille, and that will eventually become the U.S. Sixth Army group with uh, the Seventh Army and the French First Army. At this point, the U.S. Seventh Army really just consists of a single corps, but politics, if you're going to have an American commander in charge of the operation, you have an American army uh, next to a French army. That's just right. how the politics worked. So Patton at this point has got four corps working for him, which is a fairly significant amount. Uh, he has the Eighth Corps, which is uh, kind of button-hooked and gone out uh, to Brest uh, out in Brittany. And then he's got the 15th, the 12th, and the 20th Corps. Uh, and those are uh, the course he's fighting eastwards towards the Moselle River. So at a certain point, he's stretched from Metz in far eastern France all the way to Brittany, which is incredibly hard for a single army headquarters to take charge of. For, for those of you who are familiar with American geography, this would be the equivalent of having one core in Texarkana and the other core somewhere around Amarillo. That's yeah. the space we're talking about. Yeah, significant. I mean, this is a significant distance we're talking about. So General Simpson at this point kind of enters the picture. He'd been uh, back in the States. Uh, he'd commanded two divisions uh, in, that were trained to mobilize. The uh, first, the 35th Division, which is local Kansas, uh, Missouri National Guard, uh, and then had commanded the 30th Division, which is at the time was Southeastern United States National Guard. He then commanded the 12th Corps when it was training uh, for and mobilizing. And then he commanded the U.S. 4th Army, again back in the United States, and had supervised the training and certification of all uh, continental United States formations. So divisions and corps that were getting sent to Europe, sent to the Pacific, his job was the training and certification of those guys. He'd taken it over from Third Army prior to that, before they'd been sent over to Europe. Well, the U.S. Army knew that they needed a, going, a Third Army up in Northwestern Europe, and then uh, not counting the Seventh down in Southern France. That was always kind of a questionable thing whether they, they were going to do that. So the U.S. Army uh, in Europe had, had called back to uh, General Leslie McNair, the uh, commander of the Army Ground Forces, and said, send us another Army headquarters. Well, McNair only had the one Army headquarters left in the continental U.S. at that point. So what he did is he plussed up the 4th Army and basically told them to you know, divide by mitosis and uh, create two Army headquarters out of that. So Simpson had still had the training certification role, but he pushed that off on the new guys, and then he stood up with his army headquarters and got ready to go over to uh, England. So he was able to make that decision himself? No, that was a decision that uh, General McNair had told okay. him to do, and he was, he was just in charge of executing it. Okay. And that's a pretty complicated task because you're getting one set of people ready to go deploy and fight a war, and at the same time handing your job off to another group of people while you're in the process of doing it. So these guys get over to uh, England in the summer of 44 as the invasion is going on. And their first task is really to handle the reception of all the new forces flowing into England. Because although the invasion is going on, there, is still, there are still American divisions flowing from the United States to England for reinforcements. And someone's got to be in charge of uh, the military calls it joint reception, staging, and onward integration. It's a fancy term for welcoming the new people in and getting them set up and organized before they can be used into combat. That's basically what it's going for. And Simpson's headquarters was doing that. And they were in England doing that in September of 44. Well, at this point, as we said, Patton's got three corps way out on the Moselle River and one corps all the way in Brittany, which is as far west in France as I think you can possibly get. Yes. And the Eisenhower looks at, looks at it and goes, this isn't, this isn't working. I need another army headquarters to manage this. So he calls up Simpson and says, hey, I need you to come onto the continent and supervise the uh, reduction of the fortifications at Brest they still thought they were going to be able to use it as a port. And once they'd started the fight, even though they realized very rapidly the port was going to be destroyed, we have to finish the fight. So that's where Ninth Army kind of enters the picture is 
middle of September 1944, and at this point they're supervising one corps, Middleton's corps, the Eighth Corps, in the reduction of Brest. And what's interesting about the Ninth Army is they've always been kind of seen as the new guy and the kind of the little brother, if that makes sense. Because you got First Army, which is, of course, the D-Day Army. They are the they are the army that fought through Normandy. You've got Third Army and Patton, enough said, right? Uh, these are the guys that have done everything. Um, Ninth Army, at this point, has a single corps operating on them, and they're the only uh, army headquarters commanded by a guy that's really kind of new to the theater. Hodges had not uh, commanded in combat prior to stepping up to take the First Army, but he was Bradley's chosen successor. And Bradley had handpicked Hodges as, this is the man I want. Which is not an uncommon relationship, kind of, in U.S. Army history, right? No, I mean, uh, for as much as we as we like to have systems in place, and we like to say we like to have systems in place, many times it's who you know and, uh, and how they know you. Uh, so you've got Patton and Bradley and Hodges kind of forming this group of people that had been together for a long time. Remember, Eisenhower, Bradley, and Patton in particular, these three, had been with each other since North Africa, so 1942, early 1943. Plus Montgomery. Right, and so all of these challenges are, all of these personalities, all of these relationships, they built to critical masses, and that's the good and the bad. So Bradley had once been Patton's subordinate, now, uh, now the relationship switched, although Patton sometimes didn't always accept that. Uh, now, Patton learned how to follow orders, if nothing else, because he had gotten in trouble so many times that he was terrified that he was going to get fired and sent back to the States and miss the war. So after a while, he, he kind of reined in some of his worst impulses. But along comes Simpson and his staff, and they're brand new to the theater. They haven't done any of this stuff. They're not part of kind of this in-crowd. And they are given a single corps in kind of a backwater part of the, of the war to start off with. Because whereas Brest was important in the original war plans, by September everyone's sitting there going, yeah, that, that, that's no longer important. We need Antwerp. We need Calais. We need, uh, well, Dieppe's not much of a port. But uh, we need any uh, channel port we can get along, uh, along the Channel Coast. And Brest is, one, too destroyed, and two too far away from the front, and oh, by the way, all the rail lines are destroyed, so it's kind of OBE, or overcome by events, and by the time they get to uh, there, it's more long lines of finish this. So Simpson does, and he does that. And what's interesting about it is, is that he realizes that if you've got one, if you've got an army headquarters with one subordinate, it's very easy for that higher headquarters to then just kind of stand over that one subordinate and kind of micromanage them. And he understands that that's not really what I need to do. He realizes I need to kind of back off. I need to let Middleton handle his business. So he does. And that's actually a fascinating uh, kind of insight into how Simpson does business. He likes to find the right guy for the job, give him the resources, and then get out of the way. And then and then pay attention. He's not like getting out of the way like, I'm, I'm going to go over here and read a book. Uh, but he gets out of that subordinate's way and then continues to push resources and abilities there. How does this contrast with some of the other commanders? Eisenhower is kind of in a political role, but how does this contrast with somebody like a Bradley or a Hodges or a Patton? These are all very, I mean, very different styles of command, right? Uh, Hodges is interesting in that he is a very process system driven guy actually very similar to Simpson in that regard the difference is is that Hodges did not seem to have the personality that you need for that because even though you're a system process kind of person you still need to kind of have that take charge listen to me kind of a role and Hodges sometimes had it sometimes didn't Hodges is very uneven and uh, a lot of historians have kind of uh, argued that Hodges really just let his core commanders run amok. The, uh, the, the typical example being General Collins, uh, of uh, J. Lawton Collins of the Seventh Corps. Uh, Lightning Joe. Uh, anybody with the name of Lightning Joe, just fill in the adjectives, they're, they probably apply. Right, right. It's probably a bootlegger somewhere. 
and uh, the Lightning Colin or uh, Lightning Joe uh, Seventh Corps is instrumental in the closure of the Mons Pocket in Belgium, which actually ends up capturing about 40,000 Germans. It's a it's a pretty uh, substantial coup, but Hodges never seems to kind of get control of his army, if that makes sense. You've got corps kind of moving all over the place, and they're doing good work, but it doesn't ever seem like the First Army kind of fights as an army a lot of the time, after Normandy, and you can argue that Bradley did a lot of that. Um, Patton, on the other hand, Patton uses his staff very, very effectively. He's less of a process guy and much more of kind of the draw saber and charge kind of guy. His staff kind of has to run behind him playing catch-up a lot of the time. Now they do it very well. Um, The great example, of course, is the 6th Armored Division uh, in the initial breakout. General Groh is stopped. General Groh is the commander of the 6th Armored Division. He's got his division stopped in front of Saint-Malo. And he's waiting because he was told that he had to wait for orders before proceeding onward. Patton is driving around the battlefield, stops by his division headquarters, and says, why are you stopped? He's like, I was told I'm stopping because my corps commander said to stop, and we don't, want, we don't want to be cut off. We want to make sure that we're being orderly about this. And Patton says, I don't care about orderly. I don't care about flanks. You're on the road in the next, to- in the next three, four hours. I forget the exact number. Or I'll find another, another division commander. So Grove goes, okay, Roger, I'm off. That kind of jumping the chain of command proved effective and it was worthwhile, but it's not something that Simpson would do. Simpson would always allow his core commanders to be core commanders, if that makes sense. So Patton's a very different, much more flamboyant, much more aggressive personality. Um, And it's fascinating if you look at just from the leadership perspectives, you have these two very different personalities who are both successful. Patton is the brash, aggressive uh, foul-mouthed, you know, uh, will yell and will yell at someone to get them to accomplish it, and they will, and you see the success. Simpson, on the other hand, seems to be much more along the lines of the calm, deliberate, thought-out answer, the the word kind of the the word behind closed doors, and you look at the combat records of both armies, and Third Army's combat record is exceptionally successful. You can't argue with it. You know, maybe our tinker on the edges, but you can't really argue with Third Army's combat record. But the funny thing is, is neither can you argue with the Knights. Uh, so there's this perspective of two very different personalities doing two very different things. We have this same debate in Napoleonic historiography, which is my field, between Davout and Masséna, right? Where Davout is the process thinker, he's the he's the cool head. And Messina is the hot-headed kind of Italian who, who charges ahead and leads from the front. Um, and they're both equally successful. Yeah, and uh, so this is what makes military history fun, right, is, is that there's not just one path to success. Yeah. Uh, uh, but a, a quick story on that one, just very briefly, is that down along the Loire River, which is kind of the southern boundary of the U.S. forces, you've got a bunch of German forces who are walking out of south, southwest France. And an element of U.S. forces finds these guys. And at this point, it's a single platoon led by a lieutenant who comes across these guys and goes, hmm, we, uh, what do we do with this? It's, it, we're talking a couple, like 20, 30,000 Germans marching out of southwest France. They don't have any, ve- they have very few vehicles. They don't have a lot of ammunition. These guys aren't looking for a fight. But by the same token, you don't want to just let them leave. So this lieutenant goes, well, he starts bluffing and tells the Germans, oh, yes, yes, uh, we have you surrounded. We've got lots of American forces here. You need to surrender. And the German commander is really ready to. He's done with the war. And But he says, I want to have a battle to you know, just kind of a pro forma battle before he surrenders. Lieutenant goes back, he realizes he's way out of his depth. So he goes and finds his battalion commander, and it's kind of one of these, you know, you can imagine the young lieutenant coming up with the battalion commander going, help! Right. Uh, and the battalion commander says, no. Calls up the division commander. The division commander calls up the army commander, because at this point, this division was operating directly for the 9th Army. And Simpson says, okay, what do you need? 
I need tactical aircraft overhead when we're negotiating, flying threateningly, making it look like we're ready to just bomb them back to the Stone Age. Sims goes, I don't have an Air Force right now, but I'll see what I can do. So he picks up the phone, makes some phone calls. It happens. Germans go, okay, fine, we surrender. So this is a big deal. We're talking tens of thousands of German prisoners. Big photo op, right? Easy win. Basically, Lieutenant Capture's division, or actually, division, the Lieutenant Capture's corps. Big photo op, you would think that that's where generals would flock to. The division calls up the 9th Army headquarters and says, hey, you want to come on down? And 9th Army's like, mm, no, you guys got this. In fact, uh, it's like, you got trucks? Do you got people? Do you, do you have the support you need? They're like, yeah, we got all that. I'm like, But did you want to come down for the photo ops? Like, no, you're good. You got this. Your win, your take. Same thing happens at the surrender of Brest. Middleton, who his forces have done all the fighting and the hard, uh, have done all the work, turn to Simpson and come and say, hey, sir, you want to come on down for this? Like, I'll be in the background. Your It was your fight. This is your win. You take the surrender. Which is a pretty sharp contrast to another famous figure in this war, uh, a, a German general, Rommel, uh, who I believe had his own photographer who followed him around. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then we take multiple shots. And uh, yeah. he had his own publicist going on. Uh, Rommel's a fascinating story in that much of his fame actually comes... First off, he actually did do the things that we make him famous for. He did do these aggressive maneuvers. But a lot of what may uh, the mythology that made Rommel the greatest had to do with British and American publicists making him that way. Right. Because it's not that we got kicked around North Africa by any German general. We got kicked around North Africa by the greatest German general to have ever lived. Right, right. And it sounds like it sounds like Simpson is in many ways the opposite of that. Yeah, and this is kind of what endeared him to me is, is that this is a guy that is very much about the job. He's not about himself. He's not about uh, personal fame or glory. He just wants to see the job done. He's, it's something he's been trained to do professionally for his entire adult life. He's West Point class in 1909. He had fought in the First World War. He'd gone all the way from captain to lieutenant, to lieutenant colonel in the space of that war was a division chief of staff by the end of it. Uh, he'd gone through the interwar era doing all the right jobs. He'd gone to Fort Leavenworth at the Command and General Staff School. He'd gone to the War College. He taught at the War College. This is a guy that understood Army systems and processes and just wanted to do things by the book, by doctrine, Let's get the job done. I don't really care about the fancy who for all there's a job to do. Let's do it. And that, I mean, that's what the army's built off of, right? Yeah. It's you've got the flamboyant characters, but really, it's the stolid characters behind the scenes that are doing all that work. Nobody likes to talk about how many metric tons of supplies you need to move from A to B. But Patton doesn't go anywhere without some very hardworking staff officers making the fuel move. Right. Right. For sure. And I think it's a fair question to ask kind of within the context of this part of the campaign. If Simpson is just as qualified as these other commanders, as the Hodges and the Pattons, why not pull one of those commanders back to do the breast operation and put Simpson between a Montgomery and a Patton, say, and have him gain experience that way? Well, they are, they will eventually do that, but for a different reason. And the, it was not a case of him gaining experience. Uh, Eisenhower was not really interested in growing leaders by this point in the game. Eisenhower was much more interested in taking already proven leaders. There's actually conversation before Simpson enters combat of him and his inner circle are very concerned about giving an army command to an unproven leader. Essentially a training commander, right? Right. Uh, the, 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 okay, this guy's got combat experience from World War One, but that was 20 plus years ago. Um, why don't we take one of our experienced corps commanders and promote them to army command because really we know these people. We fought with them. We understand what, how they can work. It goes, uh, and that, that's actually a serious point of uh, conversation. Sim, uh, not Simpson, excuse me, but Eisenhower 
uh, is having conversations with this with Bradley. He's uh, com- coming back to Marshall about it, actually, because uh, George-, George Marshall, the chief of staff. The Army chief of staff, who's back in Washington, who's kind of managing all this. And you can see this in their uh, correspondence. And really what saves Simpson, quite frankly, is that Eisenhower gets too busy to think too hard about it. Uh, and by the time the, the, he does have the space to time uh, think about it, Simpson's kind of proven himself at breast and whatnot. And he's like, okay, it's good enough. It's better not to mess uh, mess with them now. All the corps commanders that I would have promoted are currently in the fight doing things. So we'll just leave them alone. Yeah, and I think this is an important thing to point out in, in any era of military history. You know, there's the qualification and there's the baptism of fire, but there's also luck. Oh, yeah. It, it, so much of it turns into, like, where they are. And talking about luck, so breast is uh, reduced. Uh, uh, late September of 1944. And Simpson is sitting there going, okay, what do you want for me now? Well, at this point, we're, uh, the uh, Eisenhower's decided on a broad front advance, which is rather than a single army or army group doing kind of a narrowed thrust into Germany, he's just kind of lined all his armies up and they're advancing on a broad front forward. So we're past Paris now. We're essentially, we're not completely on the Rhine, but we're essentially having the Allied armies stack themselves up between the coasts right. and Switzerland. Uh, uh, this is basically drawing a line from the Swiss border to the North Sea. You've got the 1st French Army, the 7th U.S., the 3rd U.S. So the Dragoon forces, the southern France landing, have worked their way up the Rhone Correct. Valley? Uh, okay. Right. They've worked their way up the Rhone Valley. You now have two full armies under the 6th Army Group, uh, uh, Jake Devers, uh, U.S. Army commander, uh, a very important and early armor force development. Um, and so you've got the 1st French Army, the 7th U.S. Army, 6th Army Group. Then you've got the 12th Army Group with Patton and 3rd third, uh, third Army. You've got Hodge's 1st Army, and then you've got Montgomery's 2nd British and 1st Canadian, kind of all the way up to the top. And Bradley's commanding that 12th Army Group. Bradley's got the 12th, and Montgomery's got the 12th. Or the 21st, excuse me. And at this point... Montgomery's pushing to be the main effort because even on a broad front, somebody's got to be the main effort. And if you look at a G, at a map of that part of Europe, it makes sense that the natural invasion route goes to the north of the Ardennes. The Ardennes, which, which is why you have so many wars take place in the Low Countries because or, it's the only place to fight between France and Germany. Right. I mean, the Ardennes is this massive of forests, hills, ravines, ice rivers, and ice and snow. Uh, all of this is going on. I mean, there's a reason why, going back to Caesar, the Ardennes is considered a massive geographic obstacle. Well, you also have obstacles like the Vosges Mountains to the south. So really, it's just the north. Yeah, and uh, the and the Vosges Mountains. I mean, there are ways through the Vosges Mountains, uh, the Severn Gap, which Seventh uh, Army will shoot through in November. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the logical invasion route is north of the Ardennes into the Cologne Plain. And oh, by the way, that's also where the Ruhr is. Because uh, Eisenhower wanted to kill the German army. That was his goal, was to kill the German army west of the Rhine. He didn't want to conduct a river crossing of the Rhine with a strong German army on the east. Well, not only that, if you go into like Baden and eventually Bavaria, yes, there's lots of wheat fields, but... Yeah, you can you can take over Germany's cuckoo clock production, but you're not going to get their actual factories. You will be on time. That is a true statement. Uh, so the Ruhr is up there, and that's in Montgomery's area of operations. So Montgomery's pushing and pushing for him to be declared the main effort. But the British Army is suffering at this point. Bear in mind, England has been at war since 1939. They are losing manpower. They are, in fact, actually decommissioning entire divisions in order to provide manpower to the other divisions. They are that short. Even including the Commonwealth forces. Right. Uh, at this point, every uh, you've got the Canadians and they're producing some other things. But bear in mind, England is at this point simultaneously fighting in India. A huge amount of Indian forces, like actual na- native Indian forces, fighting there. But also several Commonwealth forces. They've uh, fought in North Africa, which now they don't have to do anymore. But they're fighting in Italy. And they're fighting in Northwest Europe. So you figure an island the size of Great Britain has British forces, uh, you know, Wales, Cornwall, uh, 
uh, England, yeah. fighting in three different continents in army-sized formations. They're just out of people. So Montgomery's going, I should be the main effort, but I don't have the combat power to do this by myself. So he's agitating for the Americans to give him an army that he can command that will aid him in getting across the Rhine. Well, Bradley sees this and is a little worried because he can do the math as much as anybody else can. And he knows that Montgomery's probably going to win that argument because it's a very strong argument. So when I uh, laid out that, uh, uh, that array of forces a minute ago, you've got the first army kind of on the left end of the 12th Army Group uh, line. And you've got, okay, you got 9th Army way over there in Brittany. They're also part of 12th Army Group. Well, not, First Army is kind of drifted north up into Aachen, into, into the Aachen area. So kind of the very northern kind of quarter of their, air, of their area of operations is where most of the First Army is concentrated. And they've got, eight, and they've got at that point, Fifth Corps is stretched a very thin line through the Ardennes. You know, hold on to that. We'll come back to it later, right? And uh, holding that line of the Ardennes. Well... Bradley's original plan, before he'd really thought about it too hard, was to insert the Ninth Army into that gap between the First and the Third Armies. Which makes sense. Right. You've got a single core. It's a single core headquarters line. I've got one core headquarters for the Ninth Army right now. We're just going to put Eighth Corps in charge of that. We'll put Ninth Army in charge of that. And we'll insert them right there. Well, the problem is, is that Bradley starts thinking a little harder about this and realizes he's going to lose the argument to Montgomery at some point to provide a U.S. Army to uh, Montgomery and he goes okay who if I lose that I'm going to lose my leftmost army or northernmost army well at that point it's the first army so is he going to lose that remember that's his army that was the army he commanded and he's like mm, I don't want to lose those guys I want that army under me and that's my organization so what does he do? So Simpson, uh, is he tells Simpson, who has just arrived, he's just gotten into the Ardennes, and he's setting up shop, and he's looking at his front and going, wow, I uh, got a real winner of a front here, because he realizes that he's got all this ground to cover. He has almost no forces to do it. Right. And Middleton, the 8th Corps commander, who's taken over that front, he's got his corps headquarters way back. And Simpson goes, why are you all the way back here? And Middleton goes, I have nothing but terrain and distance between me and the enemy. And Simpson goes, well, that's not good. Uh, and so Simpson's doing some plans, trying to figure out how they can fight through the Ardennes, and he's not really happy with what he's seeing, and he's not really happy about the defensive plans he's got. And then he's told, go north. Just take your army headquarters and go north, because if we have to lose an army headquarters, we want it to be you guys as opposed to the first army. So in reassigning these forces, we're not just moving the army group boundary. We're actually physically moving the army. Well, the army headquarters. Okay. Uh, and this is the interesting thing about the U.S. Army in World War II. It was exceptionally modular. So you've got the divisions, which are kind of the building block, right? And then you had the corps headquarters. And anywhere from two to four or five divisions could be a corps. But it wasn't always the same divisions. It was task organized as needed. So you could, because it was very easy to move a corps headquarters around rather than move divisions around. Right. So you can, by just redrawing where the corps boundary was, you could kind of make a corps bigger or smaller. An army headquarters is the same basic idea. So they left Middleton where he was. And they left all the 9th Army supplies. They just dragged all the way from far western France. Basically across Texas. Right. To the, to the Ardennes. They said, all that stuff's just going to stay put. Simpson, you and your headquarters are just going to go up and you're going to take command of the northernmost, leftmost American Corps, the 19th Corps. And you're going to give the 8th Corps to 1st Army. So they're just basically trading corps. And, and then they're going to trade the Army supply dumps on a one-for-one -one basis. So, okay, we had four, you're going to have four. So Simpson goes, all right, we can handle that. So he goes up to, uh, up to uh, north of Aachen to handle that business. He's going to actually set up in Maastricht, uh, which is in uh, the Netherlands, yep. uh, up in that very kind of tri-border area there. If, if you're familiar with the, the map of the Netherlands, it's the little finger of the Netherlands that sticks down because Maastricht is probably the single most important fortress in the Low Countries. Uh, and uh, so that's where he sets up his headquarters. 
Now, the First Army, being the stellar people that they are, realize that they are about to trade a strong core, strong combat experienced core for... Now, the Eighth Corps was an experienced combat experienced corps, but it had been basically pillaged for resources from other, for other organizations. Ninth Army had been at the lowest end of the priority scale. So they realized they were, getting a, they were trading a high priority core for a low priority core. So what they do right before they hand off these supply depots to 9th Army is they lateral transfer, because it's still theirs, all the supplies from 19th Corps depots to 7th Corps depots. So Simpson shows up and goes, okay, what do we got for supplies? And the answer is nothing, sir. He's like, what do you mean? You've been here for a couple minutes. Uh, where is everything? Like, oh, it got transferred out. And so I'll ask the amateur question here. Um, why don't we just pull more supplies in from the rear? Okay, so this is the the problem of the early to mid fall of '44 is is that Antwerp is just now opening. In fact, it doesn't really open until November of '44, and all the other ports up and down the uh, North Sea coast are blockaded or destroyed. Long story short, most supplies are still coming across the beach at Normandy. Most of the rail lines are destroyed. Now we're fixing them, and this, the situation gets progressively better. But you're uh, supplying a force of 40, 50 divisions. You're talking several hundred thousand people. Everything has to come by truck. So who gets supplies is a big deal. First and third armies make an art form out of stealing each other's supply columns because, you know, it's Patton and Hodges. And, and Simpson's the new guy here, so he doesn't know all this yet. Well, and here's the funny thing is that Simpson is the new guy, but he does know this. Okay. He just chooses to not make an issue out of it. He sits there, uh, he because his chief of staff comes to him uh, and says, Hey, sir, we don't, like the ordnance battalion that is supposed to support the 2nd Armored Division, the 2nd and 3rd Armored Divisions are called Heavy Armored Divisions. Every other U.S. Army Armored Division has got three tank battalions, three armored infantry battalions, three artillery battalions. These were called heavy divisions. They were the old school. They had six armor battalions, three armored infantry, three artillery. Very robust organizations, but they needed a lot of maintenance support. The battalion that was supposed to provide that maintenance support had been pillaged of everything and couldn't actually achieve its goal of supporting the 2nd Armored Division because 1st Army had stolen all that stuff. So his chief of staff comes to him and says, hey, sir, we got a problem. And Simpson goes, well... We, uh, I can make a big deal out of it, but let's be honest. First Army right now is the 12th Army Group main effort. They're fighting in the Hurtigan Forest. They are the ones that are uh, designated to break through on the Cologne Plain and get to the Rhine River. We are supposed to support their flank. I'm not happy about this, but there's only one team and that's our team and okay our team's not playing fair with us and he actually says we'll shame them basically meaning we're just gonna carry through and do the best we can and you see this in a lot of other ways so talking about these supply difficulties the commander of the communication zone uh general jch lee uh, who went by the nickname of jesus christ himself lee so you just that's really all you need to know about his ego. Uh, he was feuding all the time with Patton and Hodges and Bradley over supply distribution because they were telling, they were arguing that he wasn't giving them enough and that he was screwing up on his job and he was arguing that they were just not, they were being profligate and not accounting for what they had. There's truth on both sides of that argument. And so just so we're clear, the communication zone or the COMZ, that's the area behind the front line? Correct. So at a certain point, the field armies and the army groups have kind of a rear boundary, and the communication zone is a four-star level headquarters that reports directly to Eisenhower. Okay, so Lee, the, the, the COMZ commander, is fighting with the three non-Simpson army commanders over supply. Right. Well, and specifically the 12th Army Group. He, gets, he has a better relationship with Deavers and Patch. Um, it's every headquarters kind of has its own personality. So Marshall sends a team to go investigate this because he's getting rumors about how bad things are back in the States. And so he sends it for this investigator and he gets the, the, the song and the dance from the first and the third armies about how Comzy's got given them all these problems. He shows up in ninth army and he gets a story of, yeah, there's some issues. Yeah, we know, we understand the roads are, jack, are, are messed up. 
but we're, we don't have any specific complaints. I mean, we understand that this is a, we're doing hard things with lots of people. We understand there's gonna be mess ups. And it's just, again, different personalities, right? Not wanting to put their, not willing to blame, in some cases beyond their control problems on someone else. They just accept the challenges they're facing. They accept that the people they're working with have got challenges and they just work together. And so that's the fascinating thing is you got this Ninth Army. It's not they were like rubes or babes in the woods who didn't understand the rules of the politics. It's they just chose not to play. So what I'm getting from this is instead of being the flamboyant um, Patton type or the, the kind of more restrained but still egotistical Bradley type, Simpson is the guy who puts his head down and goes to work. Yeah, he is. Okay, in group work, you've always got the one person that just sits down and does the job, right? And you know, he, you know, Hodges is kind of the guy that's going to get pizza, uh, which is unfortunate because his army is doing so much of the heavy lifting. That happens. Uh, you know, Patton's the guy making a lot of noise, and he wants being, to have the talk, but he doesn't want to do the work. Right, and and he's doing, and he's being useful and productive, but he's being he's making a lot of noise in the process. And Bradley's sitting in the back fighting with Patton over who's going to give the talk. Right. Uh, or arguing with the next group leader, which would be Montgomery, over which group gets to go first. Right. Um, and Simpson's just sitting there, just studiously knocking it out. And so uh, this goes through, and what's interesting, so Patton, go, or not Patton, excuse me, we're just talking about Patton. Simpson goes forward and so he goes up uh, on the northern end. Now he's still working with Bradley at this point. And he's told, oh, by the way, we're launching an army group level offensive in three weeks. You have this new core, you have this core that's new to you, um, have fun. And oh, by the way, you have a new core just coming into the line, figure it out. Oh, by the way, we've given you the smallest sector with almost no resources. And he's like, all right, let's get to work. And he has to work very closely with the Brits in order to do this. And uh, uh, because they're trying to advance forward and he's right on the army group boundary. And so uh, they're coming up and they're taking this town of Geilenkirchen. And this is uh, actually a German town because it's just, again, how the boundaries all work there. You right. know, you can drive 30 minutes and be in three different countries in this particular part of the country. Right, yeah, that's, that's how the Benelux works. Uh, and the, the way the boundary goes is that the Brits, they're having manpower issues, but they've got lots of artillery ammunition because they're closer to the coast. So they're getting lots of artillery coming in. Simpson's got the infantry. He's got a brand new division that's just shown up and he's ready to use them. But he's got a problem that the artillery support is for the Brits and the best attack avenues are really from the Brits' angle, just the way the terrain kind of works. So he kind of gets together with uh, General Dempsey, the second Ar British Second Army commander, and they kind of do an eyeball to eyeball and go, what if I just gave you my division for just the, for just the purposes of this exercise? That way you can support them with your artillery. You've got American soldiers and we'll just kind of cooperate. We'll work as a team. So the staff work is doing all this stuff. And what's hilarious is that the way that Eisenhower remembers this is that he's having this conversation with Montgomery over this upcoming offensive. And they're talking about the army group boundary line and Eisenhower remembers it as he suddenly had this good idea that why don't we just give the Brits a division to do this? When in reality, it was Simpson and his staff kind of giving him the information to have the sudden inspiration to do this. And again, there's no standing on ceremony. There's no my way or the highway. It's what it will be the most effective to get the job done. You, so you raise a really important point here for people who are interested in history research. Um, when you when you mention that Eisenhower essentially invented a past for himself, you cannot always trust primary source accounts. Right, or, or you at least have to you know go uh, dig dig a little bit deeper into it because I don't think Eisenhower completely invented it. I just think that it was a staff officer who had primed the pump uh, with this boss. One of the things about what we do in the Army is you learn how to manage a boss. And your boss is very good, your boss is very smart and intelligent, but he doesn't have the time to think of all the good ideas. So what you do is you kind of give him the information ahead of time so that boss 
comes to the conclusion that you have already figured out is the right way to do it. And some bosses, Eisenhower, to be fair, Eisenhower wasn't always the guy that it had to be his idea. Montgomery or Patton, yeah, you're going to want to make him think it was his idea. But Simpson kind of did that. And again, it worked well. And this is freely giving of resources. Remember, Simpson is the guy that, you know, people have been pillaging for resources throughout to make other plans happen. And what's fascinating is, is that he just doesn't care so long as the job gets done. And he lets his subordinates do their jobs. Launching in the November offensive, you got the two, uh, you got the third army's doing its own thing, Patton's over there. But you've got the two different army headquarters of 1st and Ninth Armies, which are attacking side by side. 1st Army headquarters, the, the army head commander and his chief of staff make their staff sit by their desks waiting for phone calls. Well, the plan's already gone out. There is nothing that an army headquarters is going to do in the first couple hours of an offensive that has not already been pre-planned or pre-arranged. It's like the first 15 plays of a football game. Right. It's already been, that, that's already been thought out. Simpson and his chief of staff look at the guys and go, guys, you put in some really hard work for the past couple weeks getting, let's watch a movie. The cores have got the fight. We'll battle track. We'll keep track of what's going on. But really, let's watch a movie and just kind of chill out and relax. And you see this understanding of how people function in different levels. You take the three 12th Army Group commanders, Patton, Hodges, Simpson. Interesting enough, everyone always thinks that Patton is the most toxic one. Patton only fires like two commander, depending on how you do the math, about two general officer level commanders in the Northwest Europe campaign. And one of them asked to be relieved. Um, he intimated that he would have liked to have fired more, and he certainly threatened it on multiple occasions, but he really wasn't, if you go off of firing people, he wasn't the most toxic guy out there. Hodges, the guy's firing people left and right. And things like, he was too slow. I didn't like his organization. Now, some of them were really good firings, like the first commander of the 90th Infantry Division back in Normandy. That guy had significant problems and did not need to be commanding a combat division and until they finally got the right guy in, in charge so not just because you fire someone doesn't mean that you're toxic right but Hodges seemed to make an awful habit of it Simpson fired no one which is fascinating and then uh, like Dick Patton one of his reliefs was a guy by the name of uh, General Woods uh, went by the nickname P which is, uh, was short for professor and uh, that was because he was always seen as the smart guy uh, he was really good on technology and really good in tactics, and he could teach it. So everyone kind of went with him. But Woods worked himself into the ground, and at a certain point, he couldn't be professional with his core commander, Mantinetti, who is okay. But he couldn't keep himself professional with his core commander, and at that point, Patton is forced to choose, do I fire the core commander who... May not be 100% right, but he is the core commander and he wasn't wrong in this particular case. Or do I fire my division commander? Well, in order to maintain the chain of command, he had to fire the division commander. Simpson takes Ernie Harmon, the commander of the 2nd Armored Division, realizes that he's getting kind of wore out. Uh, the 2nd Armored Division's been on the line since Normandy. And he realizes, and Ernie Harmon's actually been in combat a lot longer than that. And uh, he says, oh, I got a division commander that's on, that's getting kind of, it's kind of redlining it a little bit. So he's like, hey, tell you what, come on back. Come on, come on off the line for a minute. You're going to come and be my guest for dinner. And he brings in Ernie Harmon and they have highballs, you know, because this is the Army of World War II. It's the 1940s, is what do, you do. We do not have General Order Number 1, which is no alcohol. And so he basically gets this guy drunk and, they're, and they sit, they spend the whole night drinking cocktails, telling war stories. And that's all the guy needed to do was just spend a night or two off the line, you know, blowing off steam. And then he goes off and, you know, continues to excel. So it sounds like Simpson, of all of these army commanders, Simpson has the most emotional intelligence. Of those three that we're talking yeah. about. There's a, there's a there's Patch down in the 7th Army. I've not done as much research on him as I would like, but from what I have seen, Patch is another one of these emotionally intelligent, smart, 
commanders who is able to do things. Patch is actually a very tragic story. Uh, his son was a company commander in his army, was wounded, got to serve as an aide for his father for a little while, was offered a spot in the army headquarters because he'd kind of done his time, insisted on going back to the line, and then was killed under his father's command mere weeks later. And then Patch then dies of, I think it's tuberculosis or something, very shortly after the war. So kind of a tragic story on that side. Right. But of the 12th Army Group commanders, if I was picking a boss to work for, I'd want to work for Simpson. Fast forward a little bit. You were talking about luck. So Simpson would have been the Army commander in charge of the Ardennes in December 44 if Bradley hadn't decided that he would rather lose Simpson rather than Hodges. Right. As luck would have it, Simpson is up uh, in uh, you know in the, in the swampy flatlands of Belgium, Western Germany, and the Netherlands. As the November offensive kind of bogs down, right? Correct? Well, they they don't achieve everything they want, but they're 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 fought to the Roar River, which is not a huge river, but it's a big enough obstacle that's going to be a problem. So the November offensive is spent. Simpson is up in the north. Hodges has taken his place. It's now we're moving into December. Right, and Hodges and Hodges has taken. Well, Hodges has retained control of the right. of the Ardennes. Right, and Hodges has just committed most of his combat power into fighting through the Hurtgen Forest, and that is a whole other topic of conversation. But suffice it to say that the fifth and the seventh corps, which are Hodges' two primary corps, the eighth corps being spread out all through the Ardennes. Those corps are pretty heavily spent. Interesting fun fact, the 5th Corps had actually was conducting offensive operations when the German offensive started because why the uh, 9th Army had stopped at the Roar River was this is a river controlled by a series of dams. And uh, those dams were in, the ninth, were in the 1st Army's area of operations. When the 9th Army staff had done the mission analysis, for their campaign, they realized that in order to cross the Roar River, they would need control of those dams because nothing is worse than building a bridge, get some people across, and then the Germans open up the floodgates, and there goes your bridge, and anybody that's on the far side is now trapped. Right. So they figured this out like the first part of November. They'd gone to Ninth Army and said, not correction, First Army, they'd gone to First Army and said, hey, could you please attack these dams? We need you to seize these dams. They'd basically been ignored by First Army. First Army at that point was entirely tunnel, uh, focused and had tunnel vision on the Hurtgen Forest. That was where the fighting was. Incidentally, that's where Lawton Collins was fighting. You see the connection there, right? Where uh, Collins is kind of the, the dominant personality in the, amongst the command circles in First Army. Therefore, that's where they're, wherever he is, that's where the focus is. And, and the Hurtgen Forest is the Army's longest fought battle in its history and not a particularly successful one. No, well, we have chewed up multiple, uh, I think it's like four or five divisions absolutely chewed up. One of them being the 28th, which will then have similarly bad luck in the Ardennes shortly thereafter. So... First and ninth on these dams. So, so the First Army finally has this realization that, hey, maybe we need to take the, uh, these Roar River dams. Incidentally, when one looks at the map, you realize that this goes up through Monchau, through Belgium, if they'd followed that kind of movement corridor up there, they would have actually enveloped the Hurtgen Forest and could have taken it much easier. By about uh, mid-December, they actually have ground their way through most of the forest. Uh, it's taken them a lot of casualties, but they've done it. But uh, First Army is conducting this offensive to do this. So Fifth Corps is doing that as the German offensive kicks off. So as the German offensive is going through the Ardennes, all of a sudden, Hodges is like, what's going on? He suddenly realized that I have a problem. He calls up Simpson and says, Simpson, I got problems. You know, Simpson's like, okay, what you got? He's like, he's like uh, I've, got, uh, I've got German panzers coming through me. I've got pro uh, I, I don't know what's going on. We got, uh, there's, it's chaos. And Simpson's like, okay, what do you need? I need whatever reserves you can send me. So Simpson gets on the phone to the 7th Armored Division, which is his only reserve at this point in the game, says, I need you on the road now. So think about the staff work required to get a division of about 13,000 soldiers and hundreds of vehicles on the road because he tells them at lunch and they're moving before midnight. That's pretty impressive for something they had not anticipated prior. For an armored division, no less. Right. 
And this is the armored division that will fight at Saint Vith and uh, and and help hold that northern shoulder of the bulge. Compare and contrast. Bradley calls up uh, Patton same day and says, "Hey, I need you to give me the tenth armored division to uh, move into move into the uh, southern so southern shoulder and shore it up." Patton does give in, but he whines. Uh, in his diary, he's like, oh, Bradley's taking advantage of his fears. I needed this armored division for other things. And Bradley basically has to make it an order. Uh, and it's, uh, Patton is not very forthcoming with this armored division. Now, this is the armored division that will do great things. It will uh, help hold Bastogne. The 101st likes to take all the credit. But the 10th armored division was the division that bled to hold the approaches to Bastogne so the 101st could get there. Them and the 28th Infantry Division, which was essentially destroyed as they as they withdrew. But you have one commander who is just freely giving of his formation. What do you need? Here it is. Another commander, ooh, yeah, when ordered to, will follow orders. But moans and gripes about it the whole time. And when uh, Bradley loses contact with his northern two armies... Uh, Eisenhower has to make the decision to give the 1st and the ninth Armies to Montgomery under the 21st Army Group just so that there's an Army Group north of the Bulge and an Army Group south of the Bulge. When Montgomery shows up to Hodge's headquarters, every single report I can find on this, except for maybe Montgomery's, Montgomery has a very unique take on things, reports a very cold welcome. This is... Uh, the first army headquarters staff is the same staff that had been working with Montgomery before, and he's not an easy person to work with. They had a lot of their bosses' prejudices. This, these are also some of the same people that had been with the Seventh Army in North Africa, because Bradley had kind of brought the same personalities forward. Nobody wanted to work with Montgomery, and it showed. And to be perfectly honest, Montgomery wanted to fire Hodges. Sources vary on the on whether that was a true or not. I tend to fall on the side of, yeah, Montgomery wanted to fire Hodges, but couldn't because Hodges was basically Bradley's personally chosen guy. Right. Then he shows up at Simpson's 9th Army headquarters. And it's a completely different response. It's very genial. You know, the, the like First Army, you know, there's some conflicting, but everyone kind of says not a very welcome relationship. Ninth Army Headquarters, now, every single source that I can find on the topic, and that is the 21st Army Group Chief of Staff, that's Montgomery, that's Simpson, that's Simpson's Chief of Staff, um, a couple members of the Ninth Army Staff, people that would, if they would had an axe to grind, they would have ground it. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we just kind of, you know, manage stuff. Now, Ninth Army is going to do multiple things, like they aren't going to do much during the Battle of the Bolts, they're just going to send combat power south. But they do other things like the 30th Infantry Division goes south and they don't have, there isn't time to make the mail run properly. So 9th Army is not only handling their own front, but they're also running the mail for all these divisions they're sending south because they're like, look, 1st Army, you just handle your business. We got this. And again, this is just a freely giving team-based organization. And that's the story of the 9th Army throughout this whole time is it's a... I mean, of all the organization, is it, it is a team player. Um, one of the, I think it was uh, De Gwinga and uh, the, the 21st Army Group Chief of Staff said that this was the 9th Army was probably the most allied army uh, of the group. Everyone liked working with them. And that's unusual, really, when you look at all these feuding personalities. You've got the 1st Army, and they could only work with certain people and be okay. Patton, great commander, his staff adored him, soldiers, depending on which narrative you read, uh, but Patton, you couldn't put Patton underneath Montgomery for very long without something blowing up. Simpson is just one of those utility players. You can put him wherever you need him and the job will be done to standard without you even thinking about it. Yeah, utility player was the exact phrase I was thinking of too. That's, that's, a, that's a good way to put it. So, does he do anything notable after the war? Uh, 
He does a couple things. Uh, he's retired very shortly after the war. Uh, he does not actually get his permanent four-star because without going down a whole other rabbit hole, the U.S. Army would do temporary ranks and they would later be confirmed as permanent by Congress. He only got permanently promoted up to three stars and he didn't get his four-star until after the war, until the 1950s and he basically got a letter in the mail that said, congratulations, here's your, uh, here's your flag and license plate. They mailed him a star. Ex pretty much. <laughs> and he was a little upset about that, but he'd had, I mean, he was, Pretty old by this point in the game. I mean, he uh, West Point class in 1909. Yeah, you mentioned that. Uh, so he was medically retired shortly after the war. He had he had an ulcer. He had uh, uh, some back injuries. Uh, he was an he was an avid horse horse rider. Loved playing polo. So very shortly after the war, he's medically retired. So he's not going to Korea then. No, uh, he participates in a short uh, commission to kind of look at reorganizing the army. Most of their recommendations don't really go places. Uh, he'd also, before he was medically retired, he participated in a short survey mission over to China to look at the utility of maybe putting Chinese soldiers underneath American commanders and staffs to fight the Japanese in China. That, of course, ends up going nowhere because of the nuclear bombs and because of the Soviet invasion of Manchuria. But uh, afterwards, he just quietly retires. Uh, he's on several boards and... Uh, uh, but what's interesting is that he does not write his memoirs. When asked about his memoirs, he says, go read Conquer, which is the official history of the Ninth Army, which was produced by the Ninth Army staff. He says, if you want to hear about me, read about what my soldiers did. That's good enough for me. Um, there's nothing on him. Uh, there's a gentleman over in uh, the School for Advanced Military Studies that I know that is working on a biography for him. Uh, so I hope, that I hope that turns out well. Um, but quite frankly, it's he just kind of disappears because he's not one of those people telling writing these tell-all memoirs uh, where you know you read Bradley's memoirs both of them uh, that come out after the war or Montgomery's or even Eisenhower's or Guderian Guderian all these people who were very a lot of their memoirs come across very self-serving and uh, tell things from a very specific point of view they're centering themselves right and He's just not there. He, he's just not interested, uh, which I find fascinating and, quite frankly, somewhat refreshing because for all the big names that we see, the Guderians, the Manstein's, okay, you got me on German general officer memoirs there, uh, but Montgomery's, Bradley's, Patton's, for every one of those, there's five or ten or more of these utility players that don't get the spotlight because they don't ask for it. And they don't want it, they don't ask for it, they just do their job and you know what, if history chooses to remember the success of their organization, well I was a part of that organization, I made that happen, that's good enough for me. And that's truly what makes most armies truly run. It's not the big guy up front, I mean they're doing a lot of good things, it's the people making things happen in the background and not asking for the credit. But you don't ever read about them most of the time because quite frankly, it's overrun by the literature of the people, the big flashy stuff. And this is not to take away from Patton. It's not even, a, now I will say, uh, I've said some perhaps less than complimentary things about Hodges, but it's not to take away from the accomplishments of the First Army or the Third Army or the Seventh Army or even the British 21st Army group. because. Which, interestingly enough, we say the British 21st Army Group, right? Well, do we ever talk about Dempsey or Carrar? Uh, Carrar being the commander of the 1st uh, Canadian Army and Dempsey being the commander of the 2nd British Army? No, we talk about Montgomery. Uh, and why is that? Because we look at the big names, not the people who were kind of plugging along underneath making stuff happen. So it sounds like the takeaway from this is, for the historians, we also need to look at the patches and the Dempseys and the Simpsons, in addition to the Pattons. Yeah, it's it's look at the guys, and uh, and and kind of that next echelon below the that unsung staff officer who's doing all the hard nug work, making things happen in the process. Because take Patton's historic drive into the southern shoulder of the Bulge. Okay, Patton had a really good idea, and Patton executed it with verve and uh, audacity, and 
Hatton wasn't driving a tank from the Mets area. Actually, it was uh, more of the Sarlauten area. Uh, up into he wasn't doing that. Right. It was the faceless majors and lieutenant colonels and captains who were getting the road clearances, who were putting together the the road march serials, who were figuring out the timetables, who were figuring out when the logistics needed to be there. Those are the true heroes of that operation. Patton had the good idea and had enforced the standard on them to do that, but those are the guys that actually made it happen. Well, I think the other takeaway it sounds like is for, you know, academics, for officers, for people who work in companies, you know, you can be the Patton, but you probably want to try to be the William Simpson. You want to be the team player. You want to be the utility infielder who just puts their head down and does the work in front of them. Yeah, it, well, it kind of all depends on what you want out of life, right? Yeah. If you want books written about you, you want, you be the Patton. Uh, if you want to be the guy that people want to work for all the time, it's not to say that people didn't want to work for Patton, but again, my choice, I'd work for Simpson any day of the week and twice on Sunday. I'd have to think long and hard about working for Patton. And I don't think I'd really want to work for Hodges at all, except for the fact that he might leave me alone, in which case, fine. But <laughs> <laughs> No, that's a, that's a good lesson. I think that's a good, that's a good close. Dr. Nance, thanks for being with us. All right, well, thank you for having me. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.